Hey everyone, welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where we learn from anything and everything. My name is Todd Hicksonbaugh, and I am your host today. By the way, I'm also called uh, the Todd Father, if, if you're wondering. Um, I, I know I sound kind of official today. I'm sorry, everybody. It, it's just a thing. Um, but I, I truly do apologize. Um, but anyways, we have a great guest on today who... Um, we were looking forward to talking with her name is Kate Lever, and she is um, a journalist, author, person who has been published in all sorts of things, including The Guardian. Um, she, last year, she published, um, her, she authored her first book called The Friendship Cure. And today, we're going to talk. Um, we're going to talk about uh, friendship, just the psychology of, of friendship, and, and all that kind of stuff. And so, super excited for this episode. Let's not waste any more time, though. Um, but before we get there. Just want to shout out Sam Massey. Sam did a great job on the music that you just heard. Um, so if you want to, you know, have him you know, record something for you, or you want to have him do something for a podcast of your own, or for your business, or for an ad, or whatever it is, you know, who knows? Um, hit him up. His information is in the show notes. Let's not waste any more time. Let's get right into our episode today with Kate. Well, Kate, we are so excited to have you on the Learner's Corner podcast today to talk about uh, your book, The the Friendship Cure, Reconnecting in the Modern World. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, just, just as uh, we get started, I got to say that I am really fascinated about this topic because there really isn't that much written on, on friendship. Did you kind of find that to be the case and kind of like what, what made you want to get interested in this topic? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I kind of wanted to read a book about it um, and and couldn't find one that pleased me enough. So I sort of went about writing one. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially, I read an article in The Atlantic in about 2015 by a woman called Julie Beck. And in it, she argued that when we get married and have kids, the first thing to fall away in our lives is our friendships. Um, and essentially that frightened me enough to spend the next year researching so that I could essentially write a rebuttal to that article. Um, so the book was kind of um, really fr- from that day and from that sort of first bit of research that I started doing. And then I started speaking to experts because I'm a journalist. That's my kind of instinct to to seek out the people who know the most about the topic. So that's where I went to a lot of um, evolutionary psychologists, psychotherapists, scientists, um, all sorts of people, as well as ordinary people to talk about friendship. Mm-hmm. So fr- friendship, it really, it can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But what, did you kind of have like a, like a definition that you're thinking of whenever you're writing about this book or specifically talking about friendship? I mean, I guess when I talk about friendship, I talk about all sorts of incarnations of friendship because I think there can be can mean so many different things to different people, as you say. Um, essentially, I guess I mean any relationship you have with someone in a platonic sense, someone you care about, whether that's you know through work, because um, of course our work friends are incredibly important. Whether that's a childhood friend, a school friend, a university friend, someone you met by chance at the pub, at a bar, at a party, it doesn't really matter where that friendship started, as as so long as it means something to you and ideally I guess lifts you up and and makes you want to be a better version of yourself that's my greatest kind of concept of what friendship should be Caleb that means that we're friends (laughs) yes (laughs) yes it does around all the time what what while you were doing your research were there were there any interesting stories of friendship that you came across that really stood out to you 
Yeah, I think probably one of my favourite, I mean, I, I spoke to so many people about their friendships and it was deeply moving um, and, and so lovely and at times funny because friendship can be this wonderful light thing. Um, one of the greatest stories um, I heard of friendship was actually these two women who were in the, the Royal Air Force together over here in the United Kingdom um, and they essentially started around the same time and just went through everything together. They kept each other alive essentially and I guess what really appealed to me about their story was that they were in such a sort of traditionally powerful, powerfully masculine environment um, in, in the Air Force, um, but they really kept themselves together and alive and living their lives um, beside one another with the power of female friendship. So that was, to me, just this really lovely um, kind of fable about how important women can be to one another. Mm-hmm. How has how this research that you've done how has it changed um, how you interact with your friends and your friendships that you have? Um, I guess it's changed the way I interact with my friends in the sense that I am just so determined. I guess when you write a whole book about friendship, you have to be good at it. <laughs> so I'm determined to, um, to maintain the friendships I have, to really invest time and energy and love into the relationships that mean something to me and um, and to be really honest and authentic in a friendship scenario. Um, so I guess that means, you know, uh, taking on new friends where possible, but most of all, just being really loyal and fiercely protective of the friendships that I already have, which I think is something that I was already doing before I started the book. But I think it's really, really hit home to me how important that's going to be because I'm at, at the life stage where my friends are starting to get married and have kids. And I think the experience of keeping little human beings alive can be so all-consuming that a lot of people don't have time or energy to see their friends. So I guess that's the biggest lesson for me is to be understanding to the people who've become parents um, who are in my life and kind of prepare for being one myself and and knowing that I'm going to have to keep, uh, you know, get some new mom friends and keep the friendships that I have. Um, So just making sure that throughout all the different life stages that I keep my friends by my side because now I understand how vitally that important that is for both my mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. What surprised you the most in your research on friendship? Uh, I mean, I guess I think what surprised me the most is the effect friendship and its opposite loneliness um, can have on our physical health. Uh, we've always had this idea that heartbreak can be physically painful, uh, but now we have scientific evidence to back it up. Um, some fairly recent research, you know, in, in say the last decade and certainly in the last few years, um, suggests there are profound physical effects um, of loneliness on our bodies. So name me an ailment and loneliness will make it worse. On the flip side, name me an illness of any kind and friendship will probably help you survive it. Um, you know, loneliness makes us more vulnerable to getting a uh, stroke, having a heart attack, developing cancer, growing tumours, um, as well as depression, anxiety, obesity, it's insomnia. It gives us a, a, a higher chance of getting dementia or Alzheimer's disease. Um, whereas conversely, having a strong social network can help to protect you from all of those things. So I guess that was the most surprising thing to me Um because I understood, of course, that friendship has an effect on our morale and our self-esteem and our confidence and our view of the world and certainly our mental health. But it was a bit of a shock to understand that we now know it has such a huge impact on our physical health. 
I wanted to go back to something we, we were just talking about with, with loneliness, because I think there's a difference between, I think, what you're talking about with loneliness and with just solitude. Because for, for a lot of people, they're, they're, they might be listening going, but sometimes I need to be alone. Oh, yeah. When you talk about loneliness, why is loneliness and being alone different than just needing solitude and being a way to kind of recharge? Yeah, such an important distinction to make because I'm an introvert. I certainly need my time alone. Um, and I, I spend a lot of my life alone being a freelancer, um, but also being someone who needs to recharge and recover from social interaction with other people um, because I'm not an extrovert. So I think um, that solitude can be really important and really restorative and really necessary for a lot of people. Um, but I think we are losing our ability to be on our own properly. I think we allow social media, our phones, our lives, to, our work lives to kind of infiltrate our alone time. Um, so I think we've lost the ability to truly healthily be on our own. And I'm not talking about every single person, but I mean sort of broadly and generally um, people struggle to be on their own and sort of sit in the silence with their own thoughts. Um, we kind of have the need to frantically fill it with Netflix binging. Um, and I love Netflix as much as anyone, but I think we kind of um, entertain, entertain ourselves to the point where we don't know how to properly be alone. And that is part of, that's one of the things that contributes to loneliness um, in the sense that you can be lonely in your own company, but you can also be lonely when you're with other people. And I think we've lost something of our ability to connect with one another. Um, and that's why I'm kind of encouraging this revival of friendship and this renewed understanding of how important it is. Because I think, you know, being actually socially isolated is devastating. So people who, for instance, can't live leave the house because they live with a disability, um, because they struggle perhaps with autism or another um, condition that might inf impact their ability to interact with other people. Um, perhaps they're a carer of someone in their lives. Um, these groups of people particularly, um, there's a lot of research saying refugees and immigrants are particularly lonely because of the social isolation they feel in a new environment. Um, there are a lot of groups of people who are incredibly socially isolated and that can be devastating, but it's not actually necessary to feel lonely. You can feel lonely, you know, at a wedding party with 200 guests. Sure. Um, so I think it is interesting and I think loneliness is this ache um, in our heart, this feeling of, of not quite belonging and not knowing who we are. And I think it's kind of when we pause and try and sit with ourselves between the versions of ourselves that we present to other people and we don't know who we are anymore, I think that's a very lonely feeling. Um, so, yeah, to answer your question, there's a huge difference between healthy alone time um, and kind of the dangers of being lonely. What's been the internet and social media's effect on on how we view friendships and, and how it could, because you hear all the time how people talk about how negative it's impacted that because mm. you said people are, you know, we're surrounded supposedly by these imaginary friends all the time, people liking things on Instagram or, or on, you know, Twitter or Facebook. How has, what's been the impact of the internet and social media and, and how can we kind of reclaim that space? That's a really interesting question because there's a lot of negativity about the internet. The internet tends to get a very bad reputation, particularly from people um, who are of a generation where they didn't grow up with the internet. There's a lot of sort of um, skepticism, a lot of disillusionment because there's a lot of scamming, there's a lot of dishonesty on the internet. Um, and essentially when we talk about online trolling, when we talk about people who become obsessed with social media, there's a lot of reasons to blame the internet 
or um, for a disconnect that we may have between human beings. But I'm a millennial. I love the internet. I live for the internet. And I think it has the, the capacity to help us save us from ourselves. So I think it's definitely changed the way we look at friendship because I think we often make the mistake of thinking the number of Facebook friends or Instagram followers or Twitter friends that we have um, are our actual friends. Um, and science says there's a scientist called Robin Dunbar who says that we should have 150 friends and that's about the maximum that our brain can actually handle. So these people who have 5,000, 10,000, 100,000 friends on social media, it's all an illusion and they think they have a friendship that doesn't, you know, authentically exist. So there's definitely uh, a disconnect between our real friends and the friends we have on social media. And I think that can be confusing. I think it can be misleading. However, I think technology also has the capacity to really help us make friends and strengthen the friendships that we already have. I spoke to a lot of people um, who've made genuine, beautiful friendships online, whether that's by just tweeting some banter at them and eventually meeting up in person, whether that's sending long emails to each other in, in a sort of style of having a pen pal, whether that's just reconnecting with someone you did, haven't seen since preschool using Facebook. Um, there are people who are reconnecting with old friends and making genuine, valid new friendships using the internet. And now there are all sorts of apps. I mean, Bumble has a BFF mode um, to make friends. There are other apps that are coming out specifically for people to use to make friends, whether they're in a new city or they're at a new life stage. There's a great one that has launched in America as well as um, the UK called Peanut, which is essentially Tinder for new mums. You swipe, but you're trying to find uh, your mum friends when you're going through that incredibly lonely phase of just having had a child. Um, so I think there's great opportunity to use technology intelligently and sensitively to improve friendship. I just think we have to really think about what we're doing because a lot of us are quite self-destructive with our social media use. Um, so I think we've really got to think about it and assess what we're doing. But the, the internet and social media are not inherently bad things for friendship. Can you talk about uh, Dunbar's number a little bit more and how uh, and how that played out in friendship, because as as I was reading through the book, you know, I've I've heard of Dunbar's number before, but you know, you really um, the way that you wrote about it really made me see it in a different way. Can you talk about that a little bit more? So, if you research friendship of any kind, you're always going to come up with the name Robin Dunbar. He's an evolutionary psychologist at Oxford University, and he started out his research life looking at primates. And he was looking at the size of a chimp's brain and trying to correlate that with the size of their social network. So he was looking at um, chimps and he suddenly thought to himself, I wonder if I could apply this to human beings and use the size of a human being's brain to work out how many friends they ought to have in their life. Or rather, is there a magic number um, that indicates how many friendships a human being can manage before it becomes too much for them? And essentially, he did. He worked that out. He worked it out that it's he used some complicated maths and science that I don't fully understand um, to work out that number is 150. And he modestly called it Dunbar's number after himself. <laughs> Why not? If you've made a discovery, name it after yourself. Um, so, yeah, so 150. And that number um, comes up a spooky amount of times. It's, I think, the smallest number in um, in a, of a self-contained unit in the military. Um, it's the number of 
some remaining hunter-gatherer tribes throughout the world. It's essentially a, t- a neat number um, that indicates how many people, how many relationships we can manage, and that's in terms of like mental capacity as well as time investment. But that number is actually broken down into smaller groups. So you start with five as your absolute inner circle and five, are, are, you know, there's goes back to that old saying that you're lucky if you can count your true friends on one hand. So essentially science has proved that to be correct. Your true closest friends should amount to around five. And those are the kinds of the people uh, whose death would devastate you, the kinds of people you would borrow money from or stay on their couch if you had to, the kinds of people you would call in an emergency. And these people can include your family, by the way, because sometimes your family are just the friends that you're born with. Um, but essentially they're the people who surround you in your darkest and most joyous moments. Um, then we take it out to a further category and those are kind of your support network. So the people who make up your idea of the world and how you understand what's going on in the world. And then we take it out again and again until you get to kind of acquaintance territory. And by the time you get to that last ring, they're kind of people that you might invite to your wedding or you might have a beer with if you saw them in a foreign country, but probably not the kind of people you're in regular contact with. Although, of course, on social media that has kind of compacted these categories and we do tend to be more aware of what they're doing. You know, you might see a Facebook update that they've got engaged or got a new job or that sort of thing. But that 150 figure is really interesting how easy you can get, how easily you can get to it. I picked up a pencil and a piece of paper and tried to map out my 150 and I got, I I don't remember the exact number, it must have been 148 or 152, but it was eerily close to the number 150 before I really ran out of people that I truly know that I care about. Um, Robin Dunbar says that we should be able to recognize 5,000 faces so we should be able to put names to 5,000 faces, um, but that that is far too big a number in terms of having actual legitimate relationships with. So that comes down to 150, which I think is fascinating. Yeah, definitely. I think what you were saying about the 5,000, that's the thing, like explaining that part was the part that stood out to me because part of me, you know, is naturally going, okay, but I know the names of people that counts, right? But like you were saying, it really doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. Well, actually doing that exercise for yourself, trying to quantify um, your friendships uh, really makes you think about like what qualifies as a friend, Mm -hmm. Uh, because it is really easy to think like I've interacted with this person once on Twitter and I know what they do and I know who their partner is and I know what their dog looks like. Like, are we friends? But essentially probably not. I think friendship requires some kind of proper, you know, being there for one another. Um, and so it is, it's probably easy to get to that 5,000 number if you just went and listed everyone you've ever interacted <laughs> with or seen. Yeah. <laughs> but probably not covering the people who really care about you and you really care about them. Mm-hmm. So I want to go back to what you were talking about with uh, loneliness. Um, for, I'm just curious, for the person who is, you know, maybe maybe they're feeling lonely right now. Did your research, uh, like, uncover anything that helps people move from loneliness to feeling more connected? Well, it's interesting you should ask that. We, in January, um, I live in London, and in the UK, we got the world's first minister for loneliness in January. Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who's been appointed specifically to address the social and public health problem of loneliness. 
um, and now sort of the rest of the world are looking on. Um, they recently, in the past maybe month or so, released uh, their policy document on how they're going to contribute. They've, they've decided to dedicate £1.8 million to tackling loneliness, which I don't think is enough, but, you know, it's a substantial investment and it's a good start. Um, so essentially what they're doing um, and this came out just in time for me to include it in the book. But what, what they're doing is um, a program of social prescription for GPs. So they're essentially enabling um, doctors to prescribe social interaction as a medical thing. So a lot of people, a lot of lonely people will come to a doctor and say, I think I'm depressed, you know, I'm sad all the time, I don't feel like I can connect with other human beings. And they kind of misdiagnose themselves as having a mental health condition, whereas actually they're suffering from loneliness. And loneliness is so common that doctors need a way to uh, to deal with that without sort of medicating people because, you know, we have a huge sort of medication problem, um, particularly, as I understand it, in the United States. Um, so one of the pragmatic ways that they've decided to do that is sort of getting medical professionals um, used to the idea of prescribing social interaction. So it might sound kind of condescending, and I guess if it's done wrong, it probably would be, but it's kind of talking about them engaging in community programs um, and sort of coaxing themselves being back into a social environment. So if we're talking about someone who's socially isolated and lost the ability to connect with other people, it might be just sort of gently suggesting that they and helping them actually, you know, do this, but suggesting that they join a book club or join a netball team or go to the local library once a week and, um, you know, take one of the courses there, maybe do a language class, um, maybe reconnect with old friends, but find some way because I think the first step um, to, bat to battling loneliness, and it is an incredibly complex uh, mm -hmm. battle because loneliness is so kind of pernicious and sneaky, um, but the first step has to be just getting yourself into a place physically where you are more likely to interact with human beings. You know, I spoke to people, I spoke to a young mum who said the highlight of her week every single week is going to the supermarket because in that moment she's allowed to speak to the person who she's paying for her groceries and that is the only social interaction she gets apart from her children and then her children go to her estranged husband and she finds herself alone and filling in time. So there are a lot of people for whom basic interaction, as small as seeing someone to buy your groceries, um, is a life highlight. So we have to kind of encourage people to be getting back into social scenarios and social situations. Um, a lot of money is also being spent in the UK on making sure those community programs are there and available for people. Because I think part of the reason we have this modern epidemic of loneliness is we've been losing a lot of our public spaces. You know, public libraries are being shut down. Um, play, uh, primary schools are being built without playgrounds. Green spaces and parks are being cut, cut down and replaced with apartment buildings. Um, we have living situations without any communal living spaces. A lot of the places where in days gone by we would have built our sense of community belonging, um, they've disappeared. We don't talk to our neighbours anymore. Um, there's kind of less of a community spirit. So I guess we have to go towards building that up. And so I, I guess essentially I'm saying loneliness is something that we can tackle personally and privately in our own lives, but it's also something that I believe the government and businesses around the world have a responsibility to address, and they need to do that financially as well as kind of intellectually um, and pragmatically by making sure that these programs 
um, and spaces exist for people to interact in. So um, one of the things that that I'm I'm interested in whenever it comes to not just the loneliness the, the loneliness epidemic, which we've been talking a little bit about loneliness and, and kind of what that looks like, but there's another thing that happens a lot. And, and I experience it just because I work with a lot of students and a lot of, of kids and families and stuff is people who in, to avoid being lonely, they hold on to toxic relationships yeah. and friendships that that they're holding on to just simply so that they don't have to be lonely. Can you talk to us first about the impact that these toxic friendships and instead of instead of losing a friendship or whatever, instead of walking away from that, can you talk to us about first the impact of staying in, in friendships and relationships that are toxic and then how can we begin to identify what relationships we need to we need to begin to root out or evaluate more closely as you say i think a lot of people are holding on to toxic friendships out of complacency out of fear of being alone out of fear of being rejected um i think we have come to terms with speaking about toxic relationships and emotional abuse and other types of abuse in a romantic scenario a lot in the past few years because emotional abuse, physical abuse and domestic violence are such enormous social issues for us. But I think we haven't quite started the conversation about emotional abuse and toxic behaviour in a friendship scenario. And it is entirely possible that it, you know, that it can happen. People certainly get into bad friendships and hold on to them um, because they're afraid of being on their own. I think the, in terms of you asked what the impact of being in a toxic friendship is on a person, I think it can be incredibly psychologically damaging and have long-term damage um, because essentially the purpose of a toxic friendship, that person who is is behaving in a toxic manner they tend to go very hot and cold. They tend to shower a person with love and have big gestures of affection, make, you know, take you on big friendship dates, spend money on you, um, declare their friendship love for you, um, and then withdraw it um, kind of unconditionally. And that can be really damaging to your self-esteem. Um, also, people who behave toxically kind of deliberately attack you and undermine you. They might gaslight you. They might make you question who you are, what the truth is is about any given situation, um, what happened between you during any given interaction. Um, they essentially exist to erode your self-confidence, your sense of self, your identity. And these are things that we rely on to get by in the world. So if you imagine being in a toxic friendship and perhaps it's someone you started out being very close with and now they have this kind of toxic hold on you, if you imagine going through that every day where you have someone who is either criticizing you or undermining you or confusing you and then hurting you with these gestures of love and then cold kind of withdrawal, that can be incredibly damaging over a long period of time and even over a short period of time. So I think we perhaps underestimate how painful a bad friendship can be. Um, in terms of extricating yourself from a toxic friendship and identifying when you are in a toxic friendship, it really is looking for those red flags. Um, so you should be sort of talking to your friends, talking to your family, your partner, perhaps even a therapist. I will always recommend going to a therapist for this kind of thing. It's incredibly helpful to have kind of an adjudicator on your emotional life. Um, and they can certainly help you work out when someone is being toxic. 
because um, it does help and to feel validated by someone else saying, you know what, this person's behavior is not okay. Because I think we can kind of put up with a lot of bad behavior because we believe that we deserve it. We believe that um, it's we're imagining it. We believe it's not quite real. Um, and so we stay in these relationships for much longer than we should do. And that can be really dangerous and really damaging and really sad. Um, so it's looking for those signs. It's, it's asking yourself, is this person being fair to me? Is this person in this friendship for the right reasons? Does this person want me to be the best version and the happiest version and the lightest version of myself? And if the answer to that is no, then you have to start looking at the way they're behaving. Are they criticizing you? Are they attacking you? Are they, for instance, making comments about your career ambitions or your weight or your ability to have children or your choice of partner or your appearance? Um, are they making you feel less than you deserve to feel? And in that case, you need to safely extricate yourself from that situation, which can be really difficult because a lot of toxic people thrive on drama. So if you were to try and end the friendship, that can sometimes kind of spur them on and start a big dramatic thing that you certainly don't need in your life. So you can kind of, with guidance of people who support you in your life, you can kind of cease contact with that person. Um, I wouldn't ordinarily suggest um, being so abrupt with getting out of a friendship, but if it's a safety matter and you feel sort of compromised, um, then you can safely extricate yourself from a relationship by just kind of ceasing it. Um, you may want to pay that person the courtesy of explaining that you can no longer be in that friendship. Um, that can help you with closure and healing and moving on. Um, and I think you can do that in text if it's safer. Um, if you want to let that person know um, what damage they've done to you, they may not listen to you, but it might help you. Um, so I think there are definitely ways of getting out. And I think more people should be asking themselves um, how dangerous or how negative their friendships are and working out a way to get out of them. Mm -hmm. Caleb, I've been sitting here. I've been sitting here legit going over our friendship i think we're safe <laughs> i think you guys are okay <laughs> thank you todd thank you for confirming what i already knew to be true i appreciate I'm, it i'm just i'm just looking out <laughs> i don't want i don't want you to be a toxic person in my life <laughs> <laughs> thank you i know i'm not toxic so kate we've we've been really talking about kind, kind of like the heavier stuff of friendship which is definitely stuff that we need to um talk about because i think it's stuff that Honestly, it doesn't get talked about very much. Um, but but another section of of your book that really stood out to me was um, the difference between male and male to male or friendships, and then the difference or and then uh, female to female friendships. Can you talk a little bit about that and kind of what what makes the unique characteristics of each one? Yeah, of course. I found this really interesting as well. I think the best way it was put to me was that men go through the world shoulder to shoulder, whereas women go through face to face. And I think that really sort of encapsulates the difference between male-male friendship and female-female friendship. Because I think men tend to, just because of the way they've been conditioned, perhaps to do with sort of some stereotypically male um, characteristics. And of course, I'm going to be making some broad generalizations here to make a point. Um, there are, of course, all sorts of different um, interpretations of gender and all sorts of things. Um, but generally speaking, men tend to interact 
um, in a way where they require an external influence. So that might be they go and see sport together or they go and do an activity together. They talk about something outside of themselves. Um, a lot of men that I spoke to kind of needed something to do with their friends rather than sitting around and idly chatting. Um, whereas women have been conditioned to be and taught to be communicators. So women are more likely to sit across from one another at a breakfast table or brunch table or at dinner over wine and put the world to rights in conversation. Um, so I find that female-female friendship tends to be more verbally based um, and to do with sharing intimacies and sharing vulnerabilities and sharing secrets. I think gossip between women can be a really important thing, um, you know, that's often sort of dismissed as being hysterical or vapid. But actually gossip can be really important as an evolutionary strategy to get us to be closer to one another. And also gossip is, a, is kind of a safe space for women to speak about things um, where they may not feel they can speak about them in other situations. Um, so whereas I think quite sadly, I mean, I spoke to an academic um, who believes there's a crisis of intimacy among men. And she believes that because we kind of bring young men up to be to believe that they have to be stoic to believe that they have to be strong under, under all circumstances um, and to believe that vulnerability is a weakness that they have less of an ability to connect with one another on a on a deep emotional level um, and that certainly did seem to be true just from some of the people I spoke to mind you having said that one of the closest friendships um, that I spoke about, I spoke, you know, I spoke to the members of that friendship, um, were, you know, two men, two Australian men I know from back home, um, and they had this incredibly powerful emotional bond because, um, you know, one of them had been sexually assaulted and um, as a child and he had divulged that information to his best friend quite early on and that had just created this incredibly powerful bond between them and now they kind of function more like brothers than like mates um, so it is entirely possible um, for men to have beautiful emotional relationships and I believe that they sort of crave that as children particularly but I do think that um, you know in terms of mental health in terms of being um, open and vulnerable about their emotions um, a lot of men do tend to struggle just because they're kind of um, compromised by this great feeling of needing to be masculine and needing to be manly and needing to be stoic. So I think that certainly um, affects the way they interact with their male friends. Um, another academic I spoke to who wrote um, a whole book about male friendships um, said that whenever he speaks to, to men about their friendships, the first thing they kind of raise is this fear of being thought of as gay. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if they get too close or they're perceived as being too close to another man, people will think they're gay. Um, and I think that's incredibly sad. And obviously, I would rather live in a world where gay was not seen as being in any way negative. Um, but that is certainly a fear that a lot of men seem to have, according to this man that I spoke to. Um, so I think there's a lot of kind of a lot of things preventing men from having full, engaged, emotional friendships. However, one of the experts I spoke to also said that I was trying to look at male friendship through an essentially female lens and that male friendship is perfectly valid as it is. Um, it's just different to female-female friendship um, and that I, I had to recognise that as a woman. And certainly I do. I mean, I can never experience what male friendship is like between two men. I can only ever talk to people and that's certainly what I did for the book. 
Um, but yeah, in my experience, women tend to build their friendships out of being vulnerable with one another, where men tend to build it from gestures of strength towards one another. Yeah. And I would just say, and Todd, you can jump in on this too. I would say that that's accurate from my experience as well, is that yeah. it, it's much easier for us, you know, to, to connect over something that we're doing or a task that we're working on. Um, and we still can have conversation during the task. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I completely Friday. agree. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You, so Caleb and I, we meet on, we meet every Friday and pretty much spend the whole day to, with each other doing the podcast. And that's our day kind of when we're together, but we're doing stuff the entire day. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're recording with somebody or we're coming up with questions or we're doing whatever we're doing stuff, but the whole day we're kind of also talking about what's happened in the last week. Yeah, that's so nice. I'm so glad you guys have that every week. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a, it's a time w- w- when we do that. But I would categorize that Caleb and I have a bromance. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> I would say that that's. I the love thing. a good bromance. Caleb hates Caleb hates me right now. He, he's going. He's going. Talk. Just stop talking. <laughs> oh my. Um, so you, you mentioned it briefly, and we talked about it a little bit with the loneliness um, conversation or the dialogue that we had too. But can you talk a little bit about the benefits of having healthy friendships as it relates to mental health? Yeah, and look, this is a really important one for me. Um, I live with bipolar disorder. I go through a lot of depressive episodes, um, and I have really relied on my friends, um, certainly also my boyfriend and my parents and my my siblings, um, to support me throughout those, um, those periods. But I think one of the most important things you can possibly have when you have poor mental health, when you're struggling with a mental illness, um, is is good friendship. I mean, I tell this story about a time I was in Edinburgh and I was there for a comedy festival and I got really depressed, which feels wrong when you're there specifically to pay people to make you laugh. Um, And my best friend was there with me, one of my best friends, and she um, tucked me into a sofa bed in the Airbnb we were staying at she closed all the curtains. She put me under a blanket. She went and got me a family block of Cadbury's chocolate and a giant box of Scottish strawberries. And she sang me One Direction songs a cappella. And she has a beautiful <laughs> voice. And I love One Direction. And it was just like the Caleb, why don't you just sing me One Direction songs a cappella? <laughs> that's that's okay. I'll I'll let another one of your friends take up that task. <laughs> But, I, I, you know, obviously the perfect gesture of friendship is probably not what I've just described for you guys. But mm-hmm. for me, it was exactly what I needed in that moment and it was the support and I felt seen and I felt supported and I felt less alone in the world. Um, and there have been other situations when friends have done something similar to me and I, to that for me. And I think it's really important that we understand that it's actually not as difficult um, as we suspect it might be to be a good friend to someone who's going through a mental health problem. Sometimes it's just, it's sort of like treating someone who has a cold. You need to bring them soup, make sure they're you know, well-fed and drinking liquid um, and make sure they're warm enough and they're okay. And otherwise it's kind of being with them through the misery. It's keeping them company. It's not disappearing from their lives because I think a lot of people um, disappear. A lot of people, sort of like when you're going through grief, people find it too difficult to talk to someone who's going through that kind of pain and it becomes their instinct to walk away from that person rather than walk towards them, which is precisely what they should do. Um, In a more general sense, if you're not, you know, because mental health is a term we can apply to people who don't have a mental illness. So uh, I think 
friendship is incredibly important for everyone's mental health because friendship and good, solid gestures of friendship, um, they make you feel sure of who you are, your friends. They make you feel more confident in your place in the world. They make you understand your own identity, your sense of self, what you want to be, who you want to be, what version of yourself you want to present to the world. Um, you know, I have a WhatsApp group with my closest girlfriends in the whole world. And as long as I feel as though I belong in that WhatsApp group, I am okay with the person that I am. And that is a powerful thing to say because they make me sure of who I am and who I want to be. So that's a pretty powerful effect that they're having on my mental health. Um, and, and, you know, we've just spoken about the adverse effect that someone who is nasty can have on your mental health. Mm-hmm. So I think surrounding yourself with people who lift you up and make you a better version of yourself is one of the most powerful things you can possibly do in this world, in this lifetime for your mental health. So I think one of, one of the biggest challenges or tensions whenever it comes to friendship is balancing that of love and speaking the truth um, into their lives um, because you care about the person. And sometimes you need to say things that are really hard or difficult um, that may be adversely affecting them. Um, And so did you uncover anything as it concerns to that or any helpful things that might help people kind of manage that tension between, you know, kind of like speaking the truth and love? Well, I think it probably just comes down to being realistic about what friendship is. Um, And I certainly didn't want to in the book, and I I don't want to now, sort of portray friendship as this purely jovial, joyous thing where it's all about, you know, having a beer down at the pub um, and hanging out with each other and the great times. Um, Because friendship can be about all of those things, and it's certainly about joy. But friendship is also about truth and accountability, Um, And I would like to think that I have friends in my life who would tell me if I was being awful. And I count on them for um, loving me even when I'm weird and loving me even when I make mistakes. But I count on them for telling to tell me if I've done something that's questionable morally, if I've done something that hurts someone else, whether it's them or someone else. So I think you certainly need to surround yourself with friends who are going to um, when I say make you want to be the best version of yourself, I mean that in the sense, I don't mean that in a trivial sense. I mean that in a sense that you have to surround yourself with people who are going to tell you when you get it wrong. And that sometimes, you know, I think a lot of us are quite cowardly and frightened of having difficult conversations. But actually being a good friend is often having a difficult conversation with someone if you think they're doing the wrong thing. And that might be, you know, everything from you think they're, investing too much into their career and their personal life is suffering um, to, you know, you think that they're being unfaithful to their partner and that's the wrong thing to do and they're throwing away, away a relationship that deserves to be salvaged. It could cover any sort of behaviour and certainly there's behaviour that should end a friendship, um, but I'm talking about kind of forgivable behave, bad behaviour. Um, I think friendship is very much about being genuine and honest as much as being joyous and supportive. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there are some difficult conversations that need to go on between friends. And sometimes they're conversations that couldn't happen between, you know, a boyfriend and a girlfriend or a wife and a husband or a mother and a daughter or a son and a father. You know, there's all sorts of combinations of people that, that make it really difficult to have honest conversations. But a friend is a peer, so you should sort of be on equal standing and it should be more. It should be easier to have those conversations. And my only advice would really be to have the courage to have them. Um because so many of us are letting things go by unspoken. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the next thing that I want to ask you 
about is can you talk to us about um, how important it is for us to have a diversity of friendships and friend group and kind of how and how that affects us or how that can affect us um, really just affect our lives? Yeah, yeah, great. So I think it's really important. Um, I talk in the book about diversifying our emotional portfolio, (laughs) which is actually a phrase that a a guy who is in kind of finance and startups um, said to me, diversifying your portfolio. And he was talking about your career. But I like to apply it to your personal life. I think we should have as many, not as many in terms of numbers, but as many different types of friends as we can in our lives. Because I think we have different versions of ourselves that come alive when we're in different companies. Um, And I think, you know, we need to have work friendships because we ultimately spend so much time of our lives, you know, in the office or if not in the office, you know, doing work. So it's really important to have personal connections in the workplace. Um, I think it's important to hold on to people from um, your childhood if possible. I think it can be really difficult to maintain childhood friendships, but it's great to have at least one or two people who've known you for a really long time because they can remind you who you used to be. By the same token, I think it's really important to have people who didn't know you when you were younger, um, because when we're when we're adults and when we grow up, we can kind of reinvent ourselves. And I don't know about you, but certainly when I got to university, I felt um, like a different person. I felt as though you know my brain had developed to a certain period where I could make proper adult decisions, um, and I I sort of was able to make friends in a different way, um, and I cherished them. I think. Diversity of friendship is great. I, th- I think diversity in, in the sense that I think you should have them from a lot of different sources. I think you should have people who appeal to different parts of your personality. I think you should have ones, you know, for instance, someone who encourages you to be really ambitious and follow what you dream about, but also someone who will sit next to you and watch a Netflix marathon with chocolate. Um, I, you know, I think you need people who make you bolder and more brave in your life, but also people who are gentle and soft. I think you need people who encourage your intellectual side as well as your emotional intelligence. I think you need to sort of be thinking about covering all sorts of different bases in your life because it allows us to be our full fullest selves. Um, I think also diversity in the sense of, yeah, great to have different ages, different races, different ethnicities. Um, it's great to have some intergenerational friendship. You know, I'm sort of becoming friends with some much older neighbours at the moment, um, which is kind of delightful because they just have a different take on life. Um, I'm really close friends with my old drama teacher from school who's, you know, decades older than me, but I find it completely delightful that we have this friendship. Um, I think, you know, people from different backgrounds, whether that's um, where they were born, um, you know, what race they are, I think anything that gives us a glimpse into a different experience of life is always going to expand our understanding of the world. And doing that through friendship is the most beautiful way you can do it. Okay, so Kate, just as we're wrapping up, we always have just a couple of uh, kind of rapid fire questions that we love to ask everybody. And the first one is what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? Uh, personally, my dog. I, I'm obsessed with him and he makes my day better every single day and he's the greatest companion I could ask for. <laughs> <laughs> I love that answer. What What advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? To learn anything? Anything. Just to learn in general. 
my best advice would be that it's never too late to learn. I think we have this misconception that we need to do all our learning when we're children. But my mum retrained as a therapist when she was 54. Um, I think you can, you know, start a new career or get a new skill at any age and you shouldn't be ashamed to do that. Now, if you could have everyone learn one thing, now that one thing could be the, the, the English practice of putting milk in tea. You guys put milk like cream and tea, right? Well, I don't personally, but that might be to do with me being Australian originally. <laughs> okay, that, that's fair. <laughs> but it could be that, so it could be that, or it could be something Australian, or it could be whatever, or it could be highly philosophical, tactical, whatever. Okay, what would so that one thing one you have thing. everybody learn be? Um, uh, I think I have to go on theme with my book, and I would say I wish for everyone to learn the proper ability to listen to one another. Agreed. What are you, and then finally, what are you learning right now? Uh, what I'm learning right now is um, I'm trying my hand at fiction and I'm learning to be less frightened of a new form of writing. What are some of the, can you talk yet about any of the stuff that you're starting to, to do or are you just kind of dabbling? I'm just dabbling at the moment. I'm making mind maps in a, in a, and a notebook and sort of trying to invent a world and we'll see how we go. Have you ever used the app mind, called Mindly? It's mind.ly for Mindly. No, I not. Uh, it's the most brilliant thing ever. You should check that. By the way, listeners, you should check out the app Mindly. It's amazing. I'll it's check an it out. App. It's an app for, for mind mapping. A fellow millennial to a fellow millennial. Amazing. <laughs> what I, I gotta ask real quick, and then uh, we'll tell people where to where to find the book. Have you found what's the difference between writing fiction and writing nonfiction? Oh God! Well, with nonfiction, if you run out of ideas, you just go and Google something and find a new study <laughs> or a new expert to talk to. Whereas with fiction, you've got to come up with everything by yourself. It's mm-hmm. it's very intimidating. <laughs> Uh, well, Kate, thank you so much for being on the Learner's Corner today. If people want to continue to learn more from you, find your book, where's the best place for them to go to do that? Uh, you will find everything you need to know about me on katelever.com, or you can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, in terms of the book, you can find it um, you, well, you can find it through that website, or it should be in just about every bookshop. You can definitely order it into any bookshop around the world, or you can find it on Amazon or barnesandnoble.com. Just Google it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. What a fun episode. Love um, just getting to hear from Kate. Now, if you, um, you know, if you're listening to this podcast and you're like, gee, I don't ever want to miss one of those again. um, Easiest way for you never to miss another episode would be to hit the subscribe button. I only listen to the podcast that I hit subscribe to. And so I just would ask for you to think about it. Do the same thing, you know think about it might be a good decision hit the subscribe button and then hey if we brought you value through this podcast um we're 130 some episodes in but you know if we have if we brought you just value over over the couple years we've been doing this we would really appreciate if you'd leave a rating and write a review it's really is the biggest way that you can um help us uh, to gain um, notoriety and things through iTunes. And so just go on iTunes on, on the app or, or even on the website, whatever you want to do, and, uh, and just leave a rating, write a review. Seriously, it helps a ton. Um, well, and, all, and like I said before, um, shout out to Sam Massey. Thanks so much, Sam. Um, he's the sponsor of this, this podcast. 
right now, and, and he, he did a great job with the music, both the intro music as well as the outro music. He did a great, great job. Super, super thrilled with that. If you'd like for him to work on a project for you, whether it's another podcast, maybe you're in the radio business, maybe you have an ad and, and you're looking to, to, to do something on social media or, or whatever it is, um, hit Sam up. Good dude. His information's in the show notes. Now, I would be remiss if I didn't use Caleb's line. Until next time, keep learning, keep growing.